am recording this webinar, so whether you're on the webinar now or if you didn't get a chance to and want to replay it, that link will be sent to everybody after the webinar is over. Might take a little while for it to upload to the cloud, but everyone will get a copy of this recording. So welcome to this two o'clock on Friday, uh, Taxes for Creatives webinar, uh, Surf Plus and Orange Genius have partnered together to provide this webinar. Um, my name is Jennifer Simon. I'm Director of Programs and Outreach at Surf Plus. And uh, today we have with us Elaine Grogan Latrell. She is the luckiest CPA ever. Um, she founded Minerva Financial Arts in 2019, and she works to build financial literacy in creative individuals and organizations through education and coaching. She's extremely um, easy to talk to, easy to explain concepts that can be a little uh, complex and tricky, um, but her work focuses on empowerment above all else, connecting financial decisions with your creative goals. So she serves thousands of people every year and uh, does a lot of these webinars. So if you have any questions, please type them in and uh, I will relay them to Eileen and she can incorporate them into this webinar. Um, so here we go. Let's, uh, let's get going with Elaine. It's your show. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Welcome everyone to today's webinar on taxes for creatives. Um, it really is an honor to be spending some time with you today. And I especially appreciate Surf Plus and Orange Genius for hosting today's event. Today we're talking taxes, but as Jennifer mentioned, if you do have questions about anything else, go ahead and throw them in that Q&A box that you'll see on your screen. Um, this is the feature we'll be using to ask questions during the presentation. Um, I'll keep an eye on that, and Jennifer will help me field some of the questions that may come in through the chat box as well. Um, we'll pause a couple times to cover those questions, um, and if you don't get them answered, we can always follow up after today's webinar. So this is me. This is the voice you're hearing. As Jennifer mentioned, my name is Elaine Grogan Luttrell, and I'm the founder of Minerva Financial Arts, and I help artists and arts organizations with the business side of their creativity. And of course, I am the luckiest CPA ever because I get to spend time with incredibly cool groups of creative people all over the country, um, which makes working with numbers and the financial analysis incredibly fulfilling and gratifying for me and hopefully helpful for the arts as well. So what are we talking about? We're talking taxes, of course, that's what you signed up for. And so we'll begin with what might be the most common question I'm asked, is it deductible? We'll follow that with an overview of the tax landscape, uh, specifically in the context of the new Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which you might be familiar with. Um, it was passed in December and it goes into effect for 2018. And then we'll end with a quick reminder on the types of records you need to keep to support your tax decisions and some strategies for keeping them well. And of course, the final note, this webinar is meant to be educational in nature, and it does not constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. And of course, particularly with this new legislation, the regulations are still being finalized, so be sure to stay tuned for final details. And I know Surf Plus and Orange Genius and I will try to keep you in the loop as those details are finalized. So let's start talking about business deductions. In general, expenses that are ordinary, necessary and effectively connected to your trade or business are deductible. The IRS defines ordinary and necessary in the context of your own industry, but what is ordinary and necessary for a visual artist or a crafter may not be ordinary and necessary for a designer or a performing artist or an accountant. 
So it's crucial that you have an understanding of ordinary and necessary in the context of your own business and that you take the time to document that business purpose of any expenses you have, especially if you think they are unique to your creative practice. So let's spend some time talking about this question of whether or not you are actually running a business, because this can be a big hurdle for creative entrepreneurs, especially those that still have other jobs as well. Maybe a job where you are an employee of someone else uh, paid on a W-2. So in fact, one of the questions that came in ahead of this webinar asked, how much do I have to make to be a business and then have to file a business tax return? And the answer is there is no dollar threshold. If you are running a business, you'll definitely want to file a tax return for that business. And that can be part of your personal tax return as well. So instead of looking at the dollar threshold per se, we look instead to how you treat your creative practice. Do you take it seriously? Are you attempting to make money from it? Or is it just something fun you do on the side? Do you keep records of your income and your expenses and key activities you complete each week? All of those things support your assertion that you're doing this creative thing as a business instead of as a hobby. If it's a hobby, you can only deduct expenses to the extent that you have income. But if you're running a business, you may have a loss, especially in early years, and that loss can be carried forward to other tax years. Other things that help your assertion that you are running a business include having a website, seeking mentors in the field, participating in trainings, and in general, approaching your creative practice professionally instead of just for fun. Tracking your time and your business activities can help provide documentation for this as well. Very often, I am asked if you have to actually make money at something in order to claim that you are running a business. And the answer is no, you do not have to make money at your business. But the IRS will naturally become suspicious if you continually lose money doing this thing that you want to do professionally. So from the IRS's perspective, they'll wonder if you're really trying to make money at your creativity or if it really is more of a hobby for you. The general rule of thumb is that if you lose money or if you have losses three out of five years, the IRS may become suspicious. But I like to approach this question from a holistic perspective in using, instead of using some sort of annual income test. And that means you can counteract the suspicion by keeping excellent books and records, answering these questions honestly and holistically, and then documenting what you do professionally. You also want to be very, very clear about the expenses you have and whether they relate to your work as a W-2 employee or whether they relate to the creative business you're running. So expenses associated with your W-2 job are not deductible to you as business expenses. And starting in 2018, if your employer doesn't reimburse you for them, they aren't deductible to you at all. Expenses associated with your Schedule C work, however, your business, those are deductible. So you want to be really clear in your documentation about which expenses belong where. So let's pretend you are a crafter and you attend festivals all summer to sell your work. And let's say you also teach as an adjunct in your local college's craft program and they pay you as a W-2 employee. 
any expenses associated with your classroom, if you pay for them out of pocket, are not deductible to you as a business expense because they're associated with your W-2 job as an adjunct instructor at the college. But any expenses associated with your profession of being a crafter are deductible to you. And this can be really fuzzy. So for example, maybe you're hired to lead a workshop within your professional capacity and you're paid as a contractor, a 1099 employee or 1099 uh, independent contractor instead of an employee. In that case, any expenses you had associated with that classroom work would be deductible. And in the arts especially, we do a lot of different things that feel similar but may result in slightly different tax consequences. So it becomes really important, especially starting in 2018, to be clear about whether the expenses you have are associated with your W-2 work, if you have any, or with the creative business you're running. And that's something you can make sure to record in your documentation. So the second biggest challenge you may face relates to these shared kind of expenses. So think about your computer, for example. You probably use it for business purposes. After all, you're using it right now to watch this webinar in support of your business activities. But you also probably use it for personal purposes as well, especially for solopreneurs in a creative context. Often we don't have multiple computers, we have one, and we use it primarily for business purposes, but maybe for personal purposes as well. So the business use of your computer is ordinary and necessary. That means it's deductible. But the personal part is not deductible. So how would you split up this expense or bifurcate these assets? The best way is to track your usage of the assets and use that documentation to support whatever deduction you claim on your tax return. So let's say you bought a new computer in 2017 and it was $2,000. It was a really nice, beautiful Mac computer. So during one month during the year, you very carefully tracked the use of your computer and you found that you used it 60% for business purposes and 40% for personal purposes. If that's the case and you've documented that, you could very reasonably claim a $1,200 deduction for your computer on your tax return. And I got that number by taking 60%, that's the business percentage of your computer use, and multiplying it by $2,000, which was the cost you paid in 2017. So 60% of 2,000 is $1,200 and that would be your deduction. So what are some other categories of business expenses that come up a lot? Professional support is definitely one. This could be something like coaching or lessons or someone you hire to teach you how to do something. All of these potential things, classes you may take, we would put that in a professional support kind of category and they're probably deductible. You just have to document the business purpose of what you're doing and make sure that what you're doing is within your current industry. If you are a crafter or a designer and all of a sudden you want to become a harpist or a musician and that has nothing to do with your current industry, that wouldn't count as professional support, right? So it has to be within your current industry. But in general, those types of expenses are probably deductible. 
hardware and equipment related to your craft are probably deductible as well. This could include a computer or a tablet. If you're an illustrator, maybe it's a Cintiq, or maybe it's a kiln if you're a potter, or photography equipment, or lighting, or any other types of equipment you may use. I don't know if we have any fashion designers on, but if you purchase a serger or another big sewing machine, those types of things would count as hardware and equipment for your business. And if the cost of the equipment isn't too high, uh, less than $5,000 or so is a good rule of thumb, but that is not absolute, you may elect to deduct the entire cost of the equipment in the year you buy it, rather than depreciating that cost over time. So that's called a Section 179 election, and it's a great way to make sure that the deduction you get aligns with when you're actually spending the cash on the equipment. Editing software like the Adobe Creative Suite or any other software products that are ordinary and necessary to your work are probably deductible too. And this would count something like QuickBooks or FreshBooks if you have a type of accounting software that you use. Creative supplies are probably deductible to you as well, but for these, you have to be very careful about the timing. And this can trip up some people. Technically, <coughs> excuse me, Technically, you can only deduct the cost of a work you've created when you sell it. Before that, the work and the supplies that went into it are part of your inventory. So the costs are not deductible to you yet. They're still an asset. They're something you have. The back page of Schedule C, and we'll talk about Schedule C in a few more minutes, this has a section to help you calculate your cost of goods sold based on the supplies or materials you purchased during the year and then your ending inventory amount. So you start with what you have at the beginning of the year. So maybe your existing finished goods that you haven't sold yet or existing supplies or materials. You add any materials and supplies you purchase during the year. And then you subtract whatever you have left at the end of the year, and then the difference within that calculation is your cost of goods sold. So when you sell something, that's when all the costs that went into it become an expense. Before that, it's still an asset to you. One of the questions that came in ahead of time sort of had to do with this. If you have assets for your business, and inventory is a great example of an asset for your business, but it could also be other pieces of equipment or something like that, and something bad happens, so there's some kind of catastrophe or you lose everything that you have associated with your business, the question that came in is, are those losses deductible? And, and the answer is yes, but it does get kind of complicated. Um, there's a publication from the IRS, it's called uh, number 584-B, and within that publication they have a lot of worksheets that help you calculate the amount of the casualty or theft or fire or flood loss or whatever the catastrophe was, and then adjust that for any insurance proceeds you may have received. Or if you didn't receive any insurance proceeds, you would just write down the value of all the assets that you lost. So that's a little bit more technical than we're going to get into for the rest of the webinar, but that publication is number 584-B for business, and it has some great worksheets and guidance within there. Professional attire is another good category, and sometimes this raises a lot of questions. In general, attire is not deductible to you if you can wear it somewhere else. 
So keep that in mind, especially if you're purchasing something for an opening or maybe a show or some sort of fundraiser or a festival, or maybe you've been invited to give a client talk or you have a meeting with a potential collector and you want to buy something new. Any of those examples probably would result in a garment you could wear somewhere else, even if you wouldn't. So that attire is not deductible to you. But if you purchase safety equipment like goggles or special shoes or a smock or another type of attire that's for your studio but is not suitable for everyday wear, that probably is deductible to you. Reference pieces uh, are probably deductible as well. So if you are purchasing something to use as reference, um, maybe make sure you don't buy it in a size that would also fit you. I had a client once that was doing illustrations um, and needed to purchase a corset. So the client made sure that the corset was sort of a sample size instead of one that this client could use sort of in their everyday life, right? So if you are purchasing a piece to use for reference for illustration purposes, definitely that is perfectly fine and probably deductible but you want to make sure it's very clear that you're not using it for yourself it's a sample size or something like that research is another big category that is sometimes ripe for abuse depending on how broadly you define research so in general research that you conduct for a body of work or a client or even your general practice is deductible even if it includes travel or admission to a museum or other materials you may purchase but definitely make sure to document the business purpose of any research you do especially if you think it might fall into a gray area for the irs and the most compelling way to deduct your research is to draw sort of a straight line, metaphorically, not literally, but draw a straight line between the research you did and then the body of work it produced, right? Such that you can say, I took a trip to the Western United States, here are my photographs, and this is the work that it resulted in that then I sold at this festival or something like that. So you want to be very clear about kind of drawing a line and connecting the research to the resulting body of work or inventory you created from it. Jennifer, I see we have some questions that have come through the chat. Is now a good time to answer any of those? Uh, there is. There's one question. If you have more deductions than income, do those deductions carry over if you, if you decide to deduct them in the purchase year? That's a great question. The answer is yes. Uh, if you do have more deductions than income, you would have a loss and you can carry that loss forward to future years and use it to offset future income. Um, if you would prefer to not deduct the entire cost of something in one year and spread it over time to kind of manage your income that way, that would also be perfectly fine. But yes, if you have a loss, it will carry forward. Great, we just got a couple more that came in. Uh, you start your own business in trying to sell your art. How much money do you have to make as a sole proprietor before you have to file taxes? I think you might have covered that earlier, but maybe a quick answer on that. 
Yeah, uh, there's no limit. Uh, the IRS says you must pay taxes on all income earned from any sources derived. So there is no limit at which you suddenly trigger a tax filing obligation. Uh, and from a statute of limitations perspective, you probably want to go ahead and file your tax return in a timely manner. Um, and again, if there are losses, that's okay. Uh, you can use them to carry forward to future years. Okay, and when do you have to file self-employment tax when just starting an art business? That is a great question. Um, we'll come back to that one in a few more slides, uh, but, but the quick answer is if you expect to owe more than $1,000 in taxes, and there are some back of the envelope ways of calculating that, then you want to start paying attention to your estimated quarterly tax payments, um, because after that threshold, you'll be hit with interest and penalties. But usually there is a sort of, um, you know, statutory grace offered by the IRS, if you will. So as long as you pay in at least what you owed last year in taxes, you won't be hit with any penalties. So usually what happens is someone realizes, oh my gosh, I should have made estimated tax payments last year. And then at that point, they start paying them going forward. Um, but $1,000 in taxes owed at the end of the year is when that filing requirement kicks in. Okay, and then one more question and then we can move on. What is the maximum dollar amount of bank interest you do not have to file taxes? Yeah, so when you are going to file your tax return, um, you would want to go ahead and report any interest you earn on your savings account from your bank. Um, and depending on your personal tax situation, um, the income threshold you know, it depends on your filing status and the state where you live and a lot of other things. Um, so that's a hard question to sort of give a specific numerical answer to. But as you fill out your personal tax return, that's where you would just go ahead and report it. And then if you end up being below all the thresholds based on your own personal situation, then you wouldn't have to worry about it. All right, we'll come back to some more questions in a few minutes. Uh, thank you, keep them coming. Office supplies are general, generally deductible and they are not particularly controversial. Um, go ahead and document that business purpose, just like with everything else though. Um, and marketing materials are the same way. So these could be show cards or if you have small marketing giveaways at your booth, maybe you give away you know, pens or you know, little tokens or something like that. Whatever it is, I would put that in a marketing kind of category. Um, if you uh, purchase ads online, uh, that's obviously marketing and advertising. Uh, or if you print up some kind of postcard or something you would mail out to your customer list, uh, that would be marketing materials. And again, all of that is deductible and not particularly controversial. But then we get into an area that is a little bit more controversial. You may deduct expenses associated with your home office or your studio space on Schedule C, but the space must be used exclusively and regularly for your business purpose. So it can't also be your kitchen table, for example. And this is one of those areas where you want to make sure you are complying with the letter of the law on this deduction, in part because exclusive and regular use is a high hurdle to meet, and the IRS knows that. They know that a lot of people will attempt to claim this deduction without using the space exclusively and regularly for the business purpose. 
So that's why sometimes we'll hear this called a red flag item for the IRS, meaning it receives extra scrutiny. Um, and partially that's because it is hard to have a space in your home that is really and truly exclusively used for your business purpose. But if that is your true, or if that is true in your situation, be honest with yourself when it comes to this deduction. And then if it is true, and if you're comfortable with that, go ahead and claim the deduction. But do know that you do have to meet that exclusive and regular use test. Um, you might want to save a copy of your floor plan, um, especially if you might move in the next six to seven years. And you would want to note on the floor plan the exclusive and regular business use section of your home. Um, you might want to capture some images of the space as well. Um, and then save that in your tax files. And then if you pay for a studio space or office space somewhere else, that expense is deductible to you and that is far less controversial because it might not also be your bedroom or your living room or your kitchen or something like that. But if you do pay for office space or studio space somewhere else, you cannot claim the home office or home studio deduction. So just be pretty clear about this. If you have a space within your home that is exclusively and regularly used for your business purpose, and you have no other place where you conduct administrative tasks related to your business, then you may be eligible for the home office or home studio deduction. And you'd want to document the space that is exclusively and regularly used, and then save a copy of your mortgage or rent payments and your utilities and all of that, and then claim a percentage of those expenses as your deduction. And again, that could go on Schedule C if you are a sole proprietor or a single member LLC, and it's in its own spot way down on line 30. So you definitely want to pay attention to that. And actually, I see a question that has just come through the Q&A. question is, can you deduct both a home studio and a paid studio away from home? And the answer is no. As soon as you pay for a studio space that is not in your home, you can no longer claim the home studio deduction. Um, if you paid for a storage space off-site, for example, that would be different. But if you're paying for a space where you work um, and, uh, you know, conduct your professional work, right, if you're paying for that space, that amount is deductible to you, but you can no longer claim the home studio. So travel, travel meals, and lodging expenses are probably deductible to you as well. And again, as long as the primary purpose of the trip is business related. So if the primary purpose is for business or research or something like that, that is deductible to you. But if the primary purpose of a trip is for personal, maybe it's a vacation or maybe you know, someone you love is getting married in a really delightful place, if the primary purpose of that trip is personal, even if you take one random business meeting, one meeting can't make the entire trip deductible, right? Because the primary purpose of that trip was personal. So you would wanna make sure the primary purpose of the trip is business related. And this relates to a question that came up a few minutes ago uh, for a writer. Um, this person asked, we haven't published a book yet, but we have done reference trips and are in the progress of writing the book, and it'll probably take a few years. 
The question is, should we wait to deduct these costs for the year we publish or as we go? Um, I would say as you go, as long as the primary purpose of the trip is research for this book, um, and I would definitely document that. Um, and you might want to work with someone just to make sure uh, the process for publishing the book is kind of clear. Um, it would be a stronger argument if you already have a contract in place, for example. Um, not required, but that would make it a, strong, a stronger argument. Um, I see another question that came in about uh, the paid studio. Um, the question is, so this is going back just a moment to that home office conversation or home studio conversation. And the question is, what if you use you, the studio outside of your home part-time and that's why you also have a home studio, right? Um, unfortunately, the IRS is really clear on this. Even if you have a separate studio, only part-time, and that's why you have a home studio, simply the existence of paying for something else means that your home office space or your home studio space is no longer deductible. Um, and that's kind of a bummer because it, you know, definitely can be a problem, especially if you have an exclusive and regular space in your home that you use for your studio. Um, so maybe just, you know, think about that as you're weighing pros and cons of those different decisions. And there are pros and cons to the decision. Okay, back to travel, travel meals, and lodging. Um, I want to go back just for a second and make sure that it's clear that you're only deducting travel expenses that are associated with your business, right? So if you also travel for your W-2 job, but those expenses are not reimbursed, your employer just asks you to travel without paying for those travel expenses, they are no longer deductible to you. And this is a change under last year's tax legislation. Um, so you want to make sure to note the business purpose of your travel and be very clear about the fact that the travel is related to your profession or your Schedule C business or your freelance or contract work as opposed to travel for your employer. You may also want to investigate the standard per diem rates for meals and lodging. Um, these rates may give you a greater deduction than claiming actual expenses. Um, these per diem rates are very specific and they cover an infinite number of cities seemingly. Um, so that website, it's the GSA's website and that website is gsa.gov referenced there on the slide. Business mileage uh, falls into this category as well, although business miles driven don't have to be for um, a travel trip that requires an overnight stay. These could be for trips you take to uh, a festival or to see a client or maybe to do an install somewhere, right? These are not commuting miles, so it's not travel from your home to your employer's place of business, but if you do travel for other types of things, uh, within you know sort of your tax home and you're using your car to drive that is totally fine um, make sure you're logging the business miles in writing uh, there are apps that will allow you to do this if you're an app person um, you can also use your calendar or a small notebook in your car kind of whatever your preferred method is is fine and then the IRS publishes a per mile rate uh, that you can use to deduct uh, so you calculate the business miles in total for the year multiplied by, in 2018, it's 54 and a half cents per business mile driven. And so that will generate your business mile um, deduction, um, which can be a pretty good one, especially if you drive a very fuel efficient car. 
Um, I see another question that has come in. Um, this again goes back to the home office or studio deduction. Uh, this person said uh, that they bought a house that has a rental cottage in the back and they use it as a studio. Um, cottage is not separate from real estate taxes. Is it a good idea to separate the property and rent it to my business for tax purposes? Um, that is a fantastic question. Um, that really is totally up to you. I think even, um, first of all, the cottage feels like a space that is exclusively and regularly used for your business purposes. Um, and so I think you could just reasonably take a percentage um, of the taxes and the mortgage and you know utilities and everything else um, and claim that deduction. You just want to kind of document how you calculated that. Um, it is not necessary for you to separate it and rent it back to the business for tax purposes. Um, so don't feel like you have to do that. You can just keep some documentation um, and that'll be perfectly fine. Going back to business meals, um, generally speaking, business meals are deductible, but there is a 50% limitation to the deduction. So let's say um, you and two peers uh, go out for a meal and you spend $300 for easy math, just go with me, let's assume it's not lavish or extravagant to have a $300 meal for three uh, craft artists. And uh, one of you picks up the tab and while you're there you talk about uh, pros and cons of participating in a particular festival and whether or not you want to do that this year, right? That's perfectly fine. There is a business purpose to the meal and the meeting so you would be able to deduct half of that cost. So half of 300 would be $150. Um, sometimes people ask the question, you know, is that because your portion of the meal isn't deductible? Um, which is an interesting thought, but that's not the rationale. It's a 50% limitation no matter how many people are at the meal. So it's not just that your portion isn't deductible, it's just that 50% isn't deductible. So be aware of that, document the business purpose and know that that deduction is limited. Um, entertainment expenses used to be deductible, um, again, subject to that 50% limitation, uh, but under the new legislation, they appear not to be deductible. Um, so if your business model relies on schmoozing people or taking them out to you know, fancy entertainment kind of events, uh, this is something you might wanna pay really close attention to. Um, in my experience, that doesn't apply to a lot of the individual creative entrepreneurs I work with, so this doesn't have a huge impact on them, but if that's not true, for you, uh, definitely follow up with your tax advisor on that. And then lastly, if you are a member of any professional organizations, those are generally deductible. But if there is lobbying costs associated with those organizations, uh, that portion is not deductible and the, the organization will let you know how much of that is deductible or is not deductible. Um, or if this membership organization is a country club or social club or otherwise sort of lavish type of um, membership, if you will, um, you'll want to pay attention to that because that is subject to some pretty strict limitations as well, especially going forward. So I'm going to take another pause here. Um, I see a couple, one more question that has come through the Q&A. Um, the question is, what are the top red flag deductions for artists that trigger an audit? Um, I think home studio is one uh, that can be subject to some extra scrutiny. Uh, but other than that, there aren't any sort of guaranteed items that trigger an audit. Uh, what the IRS is looking for is things that seem unusual based on what's ordinary and necessary in artistic professions. And I know that's a really 
big, vague bucket because a lot of things are ordinary and necessary in the arts, but may not be in other industries. Um, but other than home studio, there aren't any huge things that usually draw my attention. Um, research could be one, depending on how aggressive someone is being about claiming uh, different expenses are for research as opposed to maybe something, a business purpose that's a little more concrete. Um, but again, uh, assuming you're not perpetrating fraud or anything like that, right? As long as you can document the business purpose of what you're doing and then explain it if questions come up, usually then things tend to be pretty reasonable. Um, but that home office or home studio is one you want to really follow the letter of the law on. Jennifer, are there additional questions that have come through the chat that we can address? Um, one was about, uh, could you go over depreciation and amortization schedules? Does the IRS care if it's a 10 or 15 or whatever amount of your schedules? Um, uh, his understanding is that IRS is more often has rules about taking everything in less years rather than more, but he's curious about your perspective. That's, that's a fantastic question. Um, in general, for depreciation or amortization, um, all that means, uh, in case someone might not know what that term of art means, all that means is that you're taking the cost of something, and even if you pay for it in the first year, you're not going to deduct the entire cost in the first year unless you're making that Section 179 election that we talked about earlier. But what you're going to do is spread the cost over time. So maybe you purchase a computer, and let's say it's a $5,000 computer, and you don't want to deduct it all in year one. Um, and maybe you look up the standard life of the computer under the IRS guidelines, and maybe they say it's a five year life for this type of computer. Then you would divide the cost, $5,000, over the five-year period, so that's the estimated useful life of the asset, and you would deduct $1,000 per year. Now, the question is, you know, does it matter what the life cycle is? Um, and in general, what we would do is we would look to the IRS for guidance on the particular life of the asset you're asking about. So uh, the IRS has published some very clear guidance about you know, 10-year assets or five-year assets or even three-year assets. And if what you're talking about falls squarely within those guidelines, uh, that's what we'd look at. Um, if there isn't clear guidance, um, we could do a little bit more digging into other uh, sort of authoritative guidance that's come out from the IRS, whether it's through the tax courts or um, private letter rulings, although those are a little less good. Um, and we try to figure out if we can make a reasonable assumption about what the useful life of your particular asset is. Um, and then if it's really keeping you up at night, we can ask the IRS directly um, if they have a preference. Um, from the IRS's perspective, um, I don't think they care a whole lot uh, because, again, this is a timing thing more than anything else. But if we're talking about very, very expensive assets, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, then all of a sudden the five-year difference between a 10-year life and a 15-year life becomes slightly more interesting. So, you know, we want to be a little bit more careful about documentation there. So I hope that helps. Uh, we could take that a little deeper offline uh, if that doesn't answer your question or if you have additional questions. And, and just I'm glad you mentioned that, Elaine, because um, we're going to send everyone's email to Elaine after the webinar so she can send you the PDF of this presentation and then 
you can ask more questions or follow up um, on anything that Elaine talked about in this webinar. Um, we do have uh, two more kind of related questions, Elaine. What is, one is, how do you deduct a home studio if you're in a partnership LLC? And then what if you have a home studio and you also go to another studio? How would you deduct, deduct those phases? Right. So I'll answer the second question first. If you have a home studio and also another one, your home studio is not deductible. It's only the studio that you pay for elsewhere. That's kind of an either or choice. Um, so that's, that's an easier question to answer. Um, if the home office or home studio space is used by an LLC, um, you would essentially follow the same approach in that you identify the space that is exclusively and regularly used for the business purpose. And then within the LLC, um, if it's your own LLC and you're the only owner, there's no difference at all. But if you are an LLC with another member, and let's say that another member is not your legal spouse, um, then you, what you would want to do is the LLC would record uh, the tax expense for that and then essentially allocate it to you, the person who would want to have it on their personal tax return. Um, I'm not totally convinced that that's a clear explanation, uh, but within LLC world, you have a lot of freedom to kind of allocate expenses directly to one member instead of another. Um, so that would be a way to kind of make sure everyone is whole, if you will. So getting their fair share of the tax deduction. Um, and that's something you would want to review with your tax accountant for the LLC. But that's only if the LLC has another member that's totally on a separate tax return, right? Um, if it is either you and you are the only owner of the LLC, no difference at all. Um, and that's totally fine. Okay, Elena, two more questions. This person lives in a rural area and the trip to a uh, art supply store can be two to 300 miles round trip. Is that suspicious or you can deduct what that actual cost is? That to me feels like an ordinary and necessary business deduction. Um, it is not commuting to and from your place of business. It is making a supply run. It just happens to be rather far away. Uh, so that seems perfectly fine to me. Um, it doesn't also sound like the sort of thing you would do daily. Uh, so maybe just kind of identifying what's normal for you. Is it, you know, a once a month or twice a month kind of supply run or something like that? Um, and then again, just document the ordinary and necessary nature of the expense, um, and then keep your written mileage log, and that should be perfectly fine. Okay, and then uh, I'm sure uh, many people have this question. Um, I'm not clear about how to deduct ex expenses for supplies, calculating inventory, and cost of goods sold. Can you recommend a good resource for describing how to do this simply? Yeah. Um, I think there are some good resources. Um, I've written a few things about it. I will be happy to kind of send you a write-up afterwards. Um, it, it is something that kind of takes, you have to kind of let it marinate in your brain a little bit. Um, and the way I describe this for my students and for my clients is that when you purchase supplies for something, so let's say it's you know a canvas and paints, just you know very, very simple. Um, when you purchase those supplies, right, you could sell them exactly as they are, right, and they're an asset to you. You could also just let them kind of hang out in your studio. But the work you do in turning the paint and the canvas into something kind of magical 
that's the value you're adding to the work. And then when you sell the work, let's say you sell a painting for $1,000 and you've got $50 worth of sort of expenses in it, in the cost of the canvas and some paints, right? Your selling price would be $1,000. That's your revenue, the amount that comes in. And then your cost of goods sold would be $50, right? The cost that went into the thing that you sold. And if that's all you had for the whole year, you would have $1,000 of income, $50 of expenses. So you would have net income of $950. And that's what you would pay tax on. Now, in the real world, you know, there's a lot more going on in the business and we're buying lots of different supplies for different things, right? And keeping track of them. So one way to kind of think through this is at the beginning of your year, just kind of take a survey of your studio and say, okay, how many paintings do I have? Or how many pieces that are ready to be sold do I have? And how many supplies do I have? And these can be sort of ish numbers early on, right? And then as you purchase supplies throughout the year, you add that to what you had at the beginning. And then at the very end of the year, you say, okay, what do I still have left? And, you know, again, you can sort of estimate what the value of the, or the cost of everything you have in your studio is. And then that difference is what you had sold during the year. So that's how we would sort of back into it. Um, it's not sort of a natural thing to think about though. Um, and depending on the type of work you do, if you want to sort of very carefully track the cost of each piece, that's another way you could track your cost of goods sold. But this is sort of a back of the envelope way to figure out what you started with, what you purchased during the year, and then what's left at the end. And anything that isn't left at the end had to leave your studio in the form of cost of goods sold. Um, so my suggestion would be let it marinate for a little bit um, and sort of think through it. Um, maybe if that example is helpful, um, that could be good. Um, I'll see if I can dig up some of the other things I've written about it and, and share them with the group. Um, but the IRS has some guidance on this as well. Um, there's a publication called uh, Starting a Business and Keeping Records, um, and it has a section on inventory that could be helpful for you as well. Um, so be patient with yourself because it's sort of a weird thing to think about, but um, it does kind of click usually at some point. Okay, I see one more question that has come through. Can you be the only owner of an LLC in the state of California? Um, and the answer is yes. Um, all 50 states, I believe, now recognize the single member LLC. Um, so uh, we can double check that just to make sure. Uh, but yes, I believe that is correct. All right. Now that we know what is deductible, more or less, um, let's talk about sort of where those deductions go. Um, and we also want to highlight just a couple of things that have changed uh, because of the new tax legislation. And I am cognizant of the time. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left, so we'll make sure to save some time at the end for those questions. Um, this is a visual representation of what tax world looks like for an individual, although this is a very simplified uh, visual representation of tax world. Uh, so the main form is 1040, and you will also probably file Schedule C, which is where you report your income and expenses from the creative business you run, if you are a sole proprietor or a single member LLC. So your W-2 income, any income you have from um, a job where you are paid as an employee, uh, goes right at the top of your 1040, and you'll get a W-2 at the end of the year, and your employer will withhold employment taxes and income taxes from each of your paychecks. 
And for many people in the United States, that is as complicated as it gets. But for many creative people, it's way more complicated because yes, you may have a W-2 job related to your creativity or unrelated to your creativity. And then you may also run a creative business. And if you run it as a sole proprietor or a single member LLC, you'll report the income and expenses on Schedule C. If you run your creative business as an S corporation or as a partnership, uh, this could be a partnership or an LLC that's treated as a partnership, so with multiple members, then you would report everything on Schedule E. And again, these basically work the same way in that you report your income and then you have ordinary and necessary business deductions that reduce that income. And then everything flows right onto the front of your Form 1040. And that term flow through becomes kind of important in part, of, in part because of what I'm gonna say next. The flow through nature of these business entities means they don't pay their own taxes. They report their income and report their expenses, but then all those income and expense items flow through to the individual owner's tax return. And that's where the tax is paid. And that's different than a C corporation um, that would be subject to its own taxes, right? So that term flow through comes up and it becomes really important starting in 2018 because these flow through entities, also called pass through entities, get an extra 20% deduction on their income starting in 2018. Um, this deduction goes away if your adjusted gross income is above 157,500 for single individuals uh, or 315,000 for married taxpayers filing jointly. But for many creative individuals, that's a really nice additional deduction you can get starting in 2018. Um, you do want to pay attention especially to those limits um, because at once you hit 157500 as your adjusted gross income for an individual, uh, this starts to be phased out and it goes away completely after that level um, if uh, you are in certain service-based businesses. Uh, so um, if you are a design professional, um, for example, that's often considered a service-based business as opposed to someone who sells goods. Um, so you might want to pay attention to that. But again, under adjusted gross income of $157,500, there's this 20% pass-through deduction that is allowed on qualified business income from pass-through entities like sole proprietors, LLCs, S-corps, and partnerships. If you had any interest or gains during the year, uh, this is the question that came up earlier on your bank sending you a Form 1099-INT and reporting how much interest you earned on your savings account. Uh, that would be reported on the front of your Form 1040. And then all of that adds up to be your total income for the year. And then we start reducing that income. There are a handful of what we call above the line items that reduce your total income. Um, and in 2017, you had exemptions. Um, this was a $4,050 exemption for each person listed on your tax return. Those go away for 2018. But all tax filers get a standard deduction, which is based on your filing status. And for 2017, the standard deduction amounts ranged from $6,350 to $12,700. And under the new legislation, so for 2018 and beyond, 
these standard deduction amounts nearly double. So single taxpayers get a standard deduction of $12,000 instead of $6,350. And married ta taxpayers who are filing jointly get a $24,000 standard deduction instead of $12,700. So households or taxpayers lose their exemptions, which were worth $4,050 per person, but they get higher standard deductions. And depending on the number of people on your tax return, this could be good or bad news for you. You also may have heard the term itemizing your deductions. Um, taxpayers may choose to itemize their deductions instead of claiming the standard amount. And Schedule A lists a number of deductions you may claim. Uh, the go most common ones, uh, I've presented them here, are for the interest you pay on your mortgage, state and local taxes, charitable contributions, and those miscellaneous itemized deductions, which included unreimbursed employee expenses. So this is for people who have a W-2 job and they are expected to pay for a lot of their expenses out of pocket and they're not reimbursed for them. Um, those are going away for 2018. And Schedule A is where we do see a lot of changes um, under the tax legislation. So uh, as you're filling out your 2017 tax return, or if you've already done it, take a peek and look to see if some of these changes may affect you. Um, state and local taxes are capped at $10,000, which is a really big deal if you live in a high tax jurisdiction. And if you have a lot of unreimbursed employee expenses, um, that's I believe on line 27, that could be a big deal for you going forward as well. Um, once we look at all of your income and then everything we can reduce that income by, so your deductions, uh, any credits you may have, um, we figure out how much you paid in during the year to the IRS. And there are two ways of doing that. Uh, your employer, so your W-2 job, they can withhold um, employment taxes and income taxes from each paycheck or you can pay, make your own estimated tax payments. This is the question that came up earlier about when do you have to do that? Um, and the rule is once you uh, are going to owe a thousand dollars or more in taxes, you wanna start thinking about making estimated tax payments. And there's a form called 1040ES that has a worksheet that can help you calculate what that would be. Basically, you look at your Schedule C income or your Schedule E income, so all the business income you have minus all of your business expenses and then the net amount is what you're going to pay self-employment taxes on and then income taxes on top of that so that worksheet can help you calculate that this is the part where we just sort of covered about do you have to make estimated tax payments if you do end up owing or pay making estimated tax payments they're due four times during the year april june september and then january of the following year and if you do have a w-2 job you can always make use of your employer's infrastructure to withhold a bit extra from each paycheck so that you don't have to make your own estimated tax payments and you can meet with your hr person or payroll person and they can help you through that calculation. All right, so we look at all of that and that tells you whether you owe money or whether you're getting a refund. So what records do you have to keep for all of this? We've mentioned a few things. You've heard me say business purpose more times than I can count on this webinar. And the IRS says you can use any system of keeping records 
that accurately shows your income and expenses, which is pretty broad. A box of receipts can count and a very detailed spreadsheet can count too. And for each transaction, you must retain four key pieces of information. The date of the transaction, the amount, the counterparty, so who did you pay or who paid you, and the business purpose. Those first three pieces of information are preserved on your receipts or your bank statements or your credit card statements, but the business purpose is something you have to proactively supply, and this is what takes a personal expense out of being non-deductible and into being effectively connected to your trade or business, which makes it a deductible business expense, as long as it's ordinary and necessary. My favorite way of keeping this information is in a database tool like Excel or Google Sheets or Numbers or, or any of those platforms, um, especially because you can export data from your business bank account or your business credit card to save yourself some time. Um, you can also use a software-based tool like QuickBooks or FreshBooks. Um, it's best if you can save your receipts as well in addition to saving the digital information in some sort of organized system. That way you'll have all you need to support the deductions if you are ever audited. Uh, you don't have to save the paper. You can save digital copies, but the IRS is going to want to see the documentation in printed form. The statute of limitations, so how long do you need to save this information? The general rule says save the information for seven years, and we get that uh, because we know that the statute of limitations starts on the later of when you file your tax return or when it is due. So that's when the statute of limitations starts, and if there are potentially gross misstatements, it can run for six years following that starting point. So that's why we say save your records for seven years, the year in which the expense happens, and then six years after that. So that's just a good sort of rule of thumb. And that's also a good reason to go ahead and file your tax returns, um, because if you don't file a tax return, then your statute of limitations never starts, right? So you want to go ahead and file the tax return, claim those business deductions, and then let the statute of limitation run. A pro tip here just at the end, if you can schedule a little bit of time each month to kind of update your books and your records, whether it is an Excel spreadsheet or a numbers spreadsheet or a formal software platform like a FreshBooks or something like that, um, that can be a really good way of kind of staying on top of your finances. You can make sure you can record the business purpose while it's still fresh in your mind. Um, if you can set aside that time on your calendar, it'll save you some headaches towards the end of the year, uh, but it's certainly not required. All right, Jennifer, do we have some more questions that have come through on the chat? Um, not that I can see. Okay. Um, let me just, um, I don't think so, um, unless anybody has any ones they wanna quickly put in the chat or in Q&A. Um, you are right on time, Elaine, ending your presentation with a few minutes for questions. Yes. Well, I may have rushed through that last bit a little bit in the effort to end on time. Um, oh, okay, yes. Michelle wants to know, what legal forms do you have to file when first starting your business, and when do you file them? 
Ooh, that's a great question. Um, depending on the entity type you want, um, the answer to this can vary. Um, also, depending on the name of your business, that can vary as well. So if you want to be a sole proprietor, so it's just you doing your business and you're totally comfortable with that, um, usually you have to register uh, with the state if you will be using a different name. Uh, you can also file a form with the IRS to get a separate um, business identification number. It's called an EIN uh, instead of using your social security number. That is not required, but you certainly can do that if you would like. Um, and other than that, for a sole proprietor, there's not really anything you have to do. If you do want to form a, an LLC, a limited liability company, or an S corporation, uh, you would follow the procedures in your state to go ahead and do that. Um, and usually there is a registration fee. If you're going to be an S corporation, uh, you would have to file articles of incorporation and bylaws, and that gets a little bit more complicated and also expensive. Um, and there are you know, pros and cons to each of those things. Um, depending on what business name you're using as well, you may want to investigate um, intellectual property protections for that business name. But again, that's not required from a legal standpoint. Um, and the time you want to do that is uh, the sooner the better. So if you decide you are actually going to do this thing, you should go ahead and file all the requisite paperwork in your state to make sure you're doing it well. Great. Okay. I want to thank everyone for joining us. There were a few questions that came in, but I will make sure that Elaine gets them to respond to everyone with a PDF of this presentation, a link to the replay of this webinar and just a link to a quick survey to get your feedback. And I want to thank everyone for attending. Have a great weekend, happy Easter, happy Passover, and happy taxes. Yes, thank you everyone. Thanks everyone, take care.